0: In thinking about this gospel text, I remember a friend of my parents named Ed Carl, who, uh, when I was a child, came over to our house one evening for dinner and dramatically lifted up one of my mother's freshly baked steaming dinner rolls, opened it up, and savored its smell for what seemed to me several minutes. It's a memory that's burned in my mind because I have never seen anyone make such a fuss over a dinner roll. (laughs) Well, I'm going to suggest to you this morning that our Christian lives are much like Ed Carl's activity of savoring my mother's dinner rolls. We have to savor those moments in our lives when the real bread of life has smelled fresh and tasted sweet. When we have realized perhaps only for as long as Ed smelled the dinner roll that Jesus Christ really satisfies. At the same time, we have to realize that this physical bread is is only a metaphor. It's needed to sustain our physical lives, but ultimately it's not satisfying. And the danger lies in dwelling so long on the insipid white stuff in our lives that we lose our hunger for the real whole wheat bread of life. The passage we heard from John's gospel that Lisa read this morning takes place around the time of Passover. Jesus is traveling from Jerusalem to the Sea of Galilee. And in the text just before our gospel reading today, we're told that 5,000 Galilean men. Yep, they only counted the men. 5,000 Galilean men and women, their wives and their children, followed Jesus because of the miracles that he has performed. And when the crowd got hungry, Jesus fed them with five barley loaves and two fish, with baskets full left over, a story that we've learned from childhood. And and so the people, they decide, you know, Jesus is a prophet like Moses. And they want to take him by force and make him king. After all, the setup was perfect. Passover is imminent. And Jesus has provided them manna just as Moses had done. And just as the Israelites crossed the Red Sea, Jesus walks on the water. In fact, John tells us, in this gospel reading, and as it proceeds, just as we were reminded in Psalm 78 this morning, that the Israelites grumbled in the wilderness wanderings, just as they grumble in this text. All of this probably reinforced the Jewish expectation that they had that the Messiah would come with a heavenly treasury of manna that would rain down from heaven. And here he is, right in front of them. So all of this compels Jesus to take a private retreat into the mountains. He gets out. But the next day, the crowd tracks him down. Well, Jesus has had it. That's it. He challenges them. They're not following him because they believe in him, but because their bellies were filled and they want bread forever. So Jesus tells them, look, I am the bread of life which is the first of seven I am statements in John's gospel, all of which relate to the Old Testament memories in the people's minds. And so he tells them that. Of course, they didn't understand, which if they had had uh, eyes to see and ears to hear, they would have realized that the bread that he was speaking of was his flesh, the flesh that they must eat if they are going to be his disciples as he tells them, just beyond this gospel text this morning. It all fits together. He's going to give them his flesh. And he asks that in return they assimilate him into their lives and even be willing to die with him if they want to feed on this bread and live forever. Turns out what he said was so offensive to hear that these disciples decide to leave. Only 12 remain, the 12. How frustrating this must have been for Jesus. I mean, once the people got their belly full through the miracle, um, they came for more material bread. They demand of him, give us this bread always. You're the Messiah. You're the king. You could even deliver us from Roman occupation. That's the implication. So give us what we expect of a king. In other words, these folks want Jesus to further their own materialistic and, and, and political ends. But Jesus refuses to be used in that way. They want Jesus on their own terms. But he literally retreats from those kinds of demands. Actually, sometimes, you know, we do the same thing. We do the same thing. I mean, occasionally, uh, we resort to spiritual blackmail, right? Right? We make our belief in God depend upon his supply of goods in our lives or his protection of our lives. We might make it a test of God's reality, of God's love for us. If we lose a job, if we get a disease, if we experience a death, we might conclude that God must not care. If things don't bounce our way, then we're not going to bounce God's way. The thing is, God refuses to play that game. A friend of ours um, who early on was a role model for me of what a pastor should be told us that that he had not been able to crack open the ever-thickening shell of bitter resentment toward God that had enveloped his mother over the years. see, years before, she'd lost her daughter to a senseless disease. And our friend's mother nursed a grudge against God from that day on. Things didn't go her way the way that she had planned so she took it out on God, and she refused God her loyalty. So what we and our friends, Mother and Jesus' fickle groupies, have to learn is that God is not going to allow us to define the terms or set the conditions by which, he will come, by which we will come to him. Jesus makes it clear to the crowd that the way to God is defined by God, not by them. It's God who sets the agenda, not the other way around. We must be willing to accept the invitation on God's terms. And when we do, the promise is that Jesus will hang on to us and even raise us up on the last day. His bread, his flesh will sustain us. As Jesus puts it, all that the Father gives me, all that the Father gives me, will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will not cast away. That's good news. But again, God's not going to be forced by our hand. Jesus, just as the crowd was about to take him by force for their material, for their political purposes, to make Jesus a religious and a political figure in their own image to serve their agenda, so Jesus still retreats from our attempts to exploit and manipulate him. So many folks try that these days. So many folks try to baptize Jesus uh, into their political ideologies in the name of Jesus, trying to baptize him for their political stance. But the thing is, if we try to coerce God on our terms, the true God will, will never be present in our experience No more present in our experience than Jesus was when he retreated up to the mountains from the people who wanted to make him king, their king, to meet their demands, to meet their needs. And ironically, in the process, they not only failed to get the king they want, they lose the kingdom in the process. People didn't realize that everything was theirs. Everything was theirs, but on one infinitely important condition, that it all be given to them and received by them on God's terms. That it be accepted as a pure gift of the Father who gives, who gives the Son to us and gives us to the Son. You know, the Trappist monk, Thomas Merton, said it better than I could when he wrote this. There's nothing you can claim, Nothing that you can demand, nothing that you can take. And as soon as you try to take something as if it were your own, you lose Eden. Now, the the people's request for material bread, for a constant supply of food, come on, that's legitimate, right? Um, In fact, if I was preaching this um, like I've preached in Sudan, um, the emphasis would be a little bit different. It's a legitimate request. In fact, by feeding the multitude, Jesus himself demonstrated, yes, bread is needed for our daily existence, of course. And we will pray that today in the Lord's Prayer when we pray for daily our daily bread. Which, by the way, Martin Luther in his catechism said, that includes your praying for good weather, for the farmer, for the miller, for the delivery, for the retailer, for the people that sit around your table at home. We pray, we will pray for that because we need it to sustain our lives. But the thing that Jesus is saying is that what he gives, what he goes on to insist is that eating the bread of life, Jesus Christ, is more vital for sustaining, sustaining a flourishing life than just having that daily bread that we eat. As we heard in the, the psalmist recount, Israel, Israel had forgotten. That in the wilderness, they'd forgotten it. She thought her life depended on the material things of this world. When in reality, it depended on God. And so the psalmist wrote, they tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. They failed to heed Yahweh's insistence that he was to be the sole object of their worship. Not to forget him when the Hebrews came into the land, lest you have eaten and are full, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. But Israel did forget time and time again. She didn't remember that her life depended on more than just material stuff when the material stuff filled her. Well, that's the problem with material things, they're good in themselves. They're good in themselves, like bread. I mean, the material things of the world, though, can never satisfy us completely. And yet, we may spend our entire lives and all of our time and all of our energy feeding the hunger for them, trying to satisfy the craving for them. And the more we believe that our lives will be filled by the possessions of just a little bit more bread, you know, the more, that we, the more we will starve that other craving, that Begins to go unnoticed among all the others. That craving and desire for Jesus Christ. The real whole wheat bread of life. That's precisely what happened to the 5,000. They lost their craving for the whole wheat bread of life. Because their craving was just for that white stuff. So how can we keep our craving for health and wealth and success. From pushing out that craving for God. A craving that ultimately will not, uh, that, that all the material stuff in the world can't satisfy. Well, I, here's where my parents' friend Ed Carl comes in again. Because ironically, the temptation to satisfy our hunger through material things can begin to lead us to God. Ironically, our hunger for material things to satisfy us can begin to lead us to God, if we dwell on that hunger in the right way. Here's what I mean. Like Ed Carl savoring my mother's roles, from time to time, we need to take a few minutes to to, to savor those times when we thought that the new computer, or the new smartphone, or the new car, or the promotion, or the dream house, or the new clothes, or the new piece of sporting equipment would satisfy us. And then finally make us completely happy. We need to savor that for a moment. Just think about that. Savor that role. And then we need to remember how after just a few months or years, we were restless once again. Needing just one more thing, you know, just one more thing in order to be content or finding that, 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 that what had satisfied our appetite has left us hungry again. The earthly stuff never satisfies so we need to dwell we need to dwell on those times in our lives open them up savor them for a while so that by dwelling on them as stuff that never satisfies we can learn the lesson that the twelve did not that, that the 5,000 didn't learn and that the 12 were beginning to learn it's in the temptation it's in the temptation to believe that the fulfillment in our lives depends on having what the world gives us that we begin to realize how deceptive that is, that it's short-sighted, that it can be even destructive in our lives. I mean, as Jesus makes clear, the only craving that is worth being filled is the hunger and thirst for God, for his righteousness, for his justice, for his will to be done in our lives and in our world. And when that hunger begins to be fed by following the Jesus who gave his flesh for us, then we will begin to realize that the nourishment that we get from that is so much more satisfying than all the stuff in life that we can accumulate. The 5,000 didn't get it, that the miracle of feeding them with bread and fish was only a sign. To point them to the true bread from heaven that had come from Jesus Christ. That the provision of manna in the wilderness, like the feast that they had had the day before, only foreshadowed the true manna perfectly given to them in Jesus Christ. And that's the point, even of the verb tenses in verse 32 Moses gave, but God is giving right now. They missed the point and they went away disappointed. Uh, The bread was meant to lead them to Christ, but they came only to be filled again by that bread. They had been looking for a winning lottery ticket that would give them a lifetime supply of a bellyful, But all they found was a man who told them that they must share in his death, eat his flesh and drink his blood to satisfy their real hunger forever. And just as a lot of folks did then, today, many find that incredibly offensive. Well, we can't be too quick to judge them. I think we find this offensive at times if we're really honest with ourselves. When Jesus breaks through the layers of respectability, when he breaks through the layers of what's abstract, his reality comes too close, comes a little bit too concrete. It's sometimes threatening to lose our lives for his sake in order to find our true fulfillment in life in him. So we can continue to desire so much less. To paraphrase C.S. Lewis, we're content to make mud pies in the city streets when a vacation, a holiday on the beach has been promised to us. I'm tempted that every time I open up Amazon's website. I'm tempted every time um, I've got a book that comes out and there's the, oh boy, this'll do it. I'm tempted wondering if we should trade in Treveka's 2009 Fit for a new Honda CRV. i I'm tempted to find satisfaction in these mud pies until I remind myself that at best these will give me temporary satisfaction and at worst repeated times of disappointment and emptiness. But I have to dwell on these moments, savor them, to learn from them, until I can once again appreciate and not find offensive the words of Jesus. Only those who eat my flesh and drink my blood will never hunger or thirst again. The Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, she got it about the thirst. But the 5,000 in John chapter six didn't understand the bit about hunger. But the 12 knew enough to follow Jesus further. They had no clear grasp you can, get, you, can, you can bet on that. They had no clear grasp of what Jesus all was up to entirely, how He could be the bread come down from heaven to satisfy them. But they wanted more, but what did they want? They wanted more of Him. They sensed something vital that could fill a longing, an ache uh, for satisfaction in their lives. Maybe they savored those times when the material stuff had let them down. But now they were also learning to savor moments when they found some satisfaction in Jesus Christ. Like the night before, when he came to them on the water and got in the boat. And so they'll follow him. They'll follow him to the end of John's gospel. They'll find life in dying to self. They'll find life in giving themselves completely to and for Christ, the bread of life, who will raise them up on the last day. It's a radical thing. It's a radical thing for us to join these 12 in this venture. It means giving up our attempts to find contentment and security in what the everyday world gives us, whether that's on the personal level or the national level. It means we will not be satisfied with living our lives on a superficial surface level of life. As the Quaker Thomas Kelly put it so well, Christ didn't live and die for superficial religion, for mediocrity. He lived and died so that the insatiable, the inevitable, insatiable God hunger in us, that desire for a flourishing life, will drive us from our mediocrity and our superficial materialistic living into the passionate quest for the real whole wheat bread of life. That's what he died for. So take some time this week. Savor the role whose ingredients are the experiences in your life. Think about them. And then ask yourself if you've been settling for that plain store-bought white bread. Have there been times when it has left you cravings for something more substantial? God's offering you and me the heaven-made whole wheat, but we have to be willing to savor it and then eat it. Jesus said to the crowd, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. And he says the same thing to us this morning. The one who was crucified and raised on our behalf, invites us even to come and eat his flesh and drink his blood as the bread and the wine on that table will signify for us in a few minutes. And when that crucified, risen, and ascended, Jesus asks, do you also wish to go away? We will answer with Simon Peter, Lord, to whom shall we go? What security or satisfaction is there in this earthly stuff? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Take just a few moments. Open up that role. Savor those moments in life. Maybe that one experience when you thought this was going to satisfy. And it didn't. And then take another few moments, savor the role of the one who is the bread of life so that we will never hunger or thirst again. Amen.